It's a new year and a new season of Flash Memoir. Memoria is an independent podcast run by volunteers. Our writers, audio editors and illustrator pour hours into producing work for this podcast, which is why we need your support to keep going. Go to our website at memoriapodcast.com and consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month or the cost of a cup of coffee, you can help support us so we can keep on doing what we do. Hi, I'm Nat V, and welcome to Season 4 of Memoria. Flash Memoir, we've adapted into bite-sized audio stories with sound effects and music. Each episode explores a moment that shaped a writer's life. Welcome to our final episode in our Spirit of Punk series, live stories recorded at the end of last year at Buck Mulligan's Bar in Melbourne. The recordings are live, so there are some little mic disturbances here and there. But more than anything, there is that unmistakable courage as writers take to the stage to read their non-fiction stories. Part one is now available. Just go to our website, memoriapodcast.com. To kick off this episode, here is Lacey Smith with a story about living in a boarding school. Good evening, everyone. Um, What inspired this piece was a mandatory assignment um, (laughs) about my uh, time at boarding school, which I'm still trying to get over. I was sent to boarding school at the age of 12, and before you ask, yes, my parents loved me, no, my experience did not turn me into a lesbian, and no, it was not just like Hogwarts. In fact, any expectations that my boarding school experience was going to be like Hogwarts withered and died as soon as I was given my regulation pyjamas and told to grow my hair because that's what Jesus found attractive. (laughs) At boarding school, I did learn lifelong skills. Uh, That would help me succeed, kind of, in the outside world. Like, stepping out of line is never worth the consequences, slash beating. Um, And if you didn't eat what was in front of you, you didn't eat at all. In fact, this is why I can now eat raw chicken without getting sick. (laughs) And if you got sick at school, you were not going to the doctor, unless your parents drove you there themselves. So, boarders nurse broken bones, concussions, and in one case, a case of pneumonia so severe that the student fell into a coma. If you were felt unwell, it was because you were homesick. Another aspect of boarding school life was the constant war for territory between the day scabs and the boarders. We thought their town was shit, and we thought that the teachers' preference for them because the teachers were their parents was bullshit, and they thought we were godless heathens who needed to be put in our place. They were kind of right, and the war still continues today. A classic example of day student favoritism happened when I was 15 and my class went on a school camp to Tasmania. To get across, the school organised for us to grow on the spirit of Tasmania despite the warning of a Category 5 storm. The waves were so big, you felt like you were on a plummeting elevator constantly and when you looked out the porthole, you could see the Coast Guard vessel making sure we got across. I walked up and down the vomited-soaked hallway, carefully avoiding getting stew on my new red converses to give people that I liked ginger ale. But my good Samaritanism came to an end when the boat lurched and I clung to the doorframe to keep from falling. 
the door shut on my fingers and they were trapped in the hinge and I can remember the like slight popping and then I realised that that was my fingers breaking. <laughs> my instant reaction to this searing agony was to pull my hand out of the door but as the door was stuck fast, it only pulled out my fingernails. So I sagged against the door and just saw the blood trickling down the frame. I couldn't even pass out properly because I was like this. <laughs> Once they pulled my blackened hand from the door, I was sent to the infirmary. I lay down on the bed while a teacher vomited into a bucket beside me. The onboard doctor took one look at my hand and picked up the phone. I'll organise for an ambulance to meet us at Davenport and then take it to hospital, he told her. My teacher shook her head and then vomited some more. Uh, no, she, she can't go to hospital. Uh, it'll destroy the student-teacher ratio. So just do what you can. She got up and left. By the way, next year on this Tasmania trip, a day student tripped over on a hike, was airlifted to the nearest hospital for what turned out to be a sprained wrist. Whereas I got a shot of something amazing and watched The Simpsons on the doctor's phone while he put my fingers back in their place. My parents were informed of the incident two weeks later. A lot of people ask whether I would send my kids to boarding school. Yes, but not that one. <laughs> and that was Lacey Smith. Our next story is by Nolene Ganane, and it's called Hellbent. I ceased diary writing after my husband read my diaries. That was 1989, I was 23. I still needed to breathe though, still needed to write what from within would not let me sleep. So my husband sat hypnotised, while my husband sat hypnotised by the television or lay snoring through the beauty of 4am, I raced manic and depressive torrents of emotion across scraps of paper. Then, as I didn't want to be opened and read without my consent, and knowing there was nowhere in this world to place my words, I'd burn them by candle flame, or tear them up and drop them into bins along a morning walk, or bury them at the beach. Sometimes I sat at the back of a church and wrote, the peace of churches is something I've long wished I could replicate. As a teen, I'd often go straight from school to the church, sneak in upstairs where only the choir was allowed to go. I wasn't in the choir, didn't even have a voice, but I knew it wasn't choir day, so I'd be alone. I don't know whether it's the prayers or the confessions which create that church peace. It wouldn't be the crimes, but I've begged for such peace for so long. One time after writing in the church, I gathered as much peace as my thin self could carry. Then, at a loss of what to do with the scribbles drawn from my pain, I walked up the aisle, genuflected, put them at the altar, and walked away. Each time I wrote and dispensed with words, I freed another beast caged within. For days I'd feel them pacing, banging their heads against my own disturbance. Day upon day their energy would intensify until eventually I acknowledged them. When I turned up, they'd rush forward begging. Their cries, their torment, need, all tore shreds from my endurance. I was too frightened to let them all out at once. I knew how I had not the strength to force the cage closed should they stampede. 
They all, those beasts within, would trample me, I knew. So when it became too much, I'd choose the ones most wanting, put my pen in the lock and turn the key. Whenever an aching beast darted from its containment, scampered from my heart up the treacherous terrain of my mind, it would, with gratitude, grant me to breathe. They never failed me that gift and I could breathe a little longer. The only problem with all this, the management of the beasts within the being of me, is that no matter how many I freed, when I turned my back, they multiplied. It's only now, midlife, that I realise it was always an unwinnable battle. I've wasted years of energy on my own guaranteed defeat. Now, older and wiser, I wouldn't be surprised if the beasts that fled snuck back to my return when I was distracted with choosing another to give to let me breathe. After all, I am their crazy home. That was Nolene Ganang. Our final story is by Laura Wilde, and it's a story about her ex. Uh, hello, my name is Laura, and I have had enough alcohol to read out loud. I moved to Melbourne in 2011 to be with my second worst ever boyfriend, Lockie. He wasn't as bad as my worst girlfriend. Turned out to be a very slight step up from the guy who sold my underwear without telling me. At 19, I was impressed by anyone with a guitar and a lip piercing. Lockie had two lip piercings and pretended to read Nietzsche. Obviously, he was quite a catch. He met me by the door of his share house with a flaccid hug. We lugged my suitcase through the communal kitchen and up a narrow staircase. There were mice in the walls and at least one exchange student smoking in the laundry room at any given moment. But after the sleepy suburbs of WA, even this sprawling slum seemed exciting. Lockie's room was literally identical to every boy's bedroom I'd ever been in. Filthy. He'd made an effort to shift the worst of the cigarette-studded dishes from the end of the single bed down to the kitchen. Whether that was to impress me or simply ensure no other women's underwear was hidden among the debris, I have no idea. We coexisted for a few weeks in relative harmony. My cross-country move had me splitting rose-coloured glasses and not even Lockie's frequent sulks could upset me. That was, at least, until the stink. I first noticed it lounging in bed one evening, watching Sookie Stackhouse be wooed by another wear-something, relishing in the luxurious absence of Lockie's bony elbow rammed into my side. I snuggled deeper into my blanket nest, and then a whiff. It wasn't the usual part of the room's perfume of old sweat and festering takeout. It was blacker a combined butcher shop garbage bin and sushi left out in the sun sort of stink. It was pretty bad. Bad enough, actually, to consider getting up and doing something about it. I kicked the back of Lockie's chair. Can you smell that? He threw a can of Lynx Africa at me and went back to playing World of Warcraft. The next day, it was worse. For the first time, I took a closer look at the squalor around me. Red Bull cans cluttered every surface while coffee cups bred new civilizations. The room was entirely carpeted by stamped flat McDonald's bags. I decided we could both do with a deep clean. Six hours later, every dirty plate and piece of trash was gone, clothes washed and put away, floor swept. I collapsed onto the bed, bone-tired but satisfied. Blissfully, I inhaled. It was still fucking there. Rotting fish heads, rancid, coppery blood, festering decay. Can't you smell it? I wailed. Lockie shrugged. It got worse. I pulled everything out of the cupboards and from under the bed. I threw out the second-hand IKEA carpet. Nothing changed. I started to smell it when I was out. 
It clung to my hair and clothes. It was in my pores. I was invaded by the stink. Lockie was fed up with my dramatics. Is something living in the walls, he said. If something in the walls was making that smell, it wasn't living. It'll go away. Get over it. I couldn't. It haunted me. Disgusted, Lockie threw the pillow at me. The single pillow that we both shared. The pillow that we shared covered in his only pillowcase. There was a sodden splat as something slithered out of the pillowcase and plunged to the floor. We both looked down. There, in the little brown-green puddle left behind by the impact, was a sprinkling of tiny bones and a little pink tail. Memoria is written and produced by me, Nat V. Music in this episode is by The Blue Dot Sessions. Each episode is illustrated by Peter Manning. Special thanks goes to Jen Farrow for her recording tech on the night and Nick Brush for letting us record his event. A special thank you to the writers who took part in this episode, Lacey Smith, Nolene Ganane and Laura Wilde. This was our final episode in our Spirit of Punk series. Stay tuned for our regular episodes starting from March. Don't forget to leave us a review. Every like and comment is important to us. Or share our episodes with your family and friends and help us spread the word. Until next time.